From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up on this Wednesday edition, could this be the case? The Constitution places its trust in the people. On hard issue after hard issue, the people make this country work. Abortion is a hard issue. It demands the best from all of us, not a judgment by just a few of us. When an issue affects everyone, and when the Constitution does not take sides on it, it belongs to the people. Roe and Casey have failed. That was Scott Stewart, the Solicitor General for the state of Mississippi, in his opening remarks before the Supreme Court this morning, arguing that the court should reject Casey and Roe. These uh, were the beginnings of the oral arguments in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. What can we deduce from the justices' questions and statements? We'll talk about it with Sharif Gurgis, Associate Professor of Law at Notre Dame Law School. But we will first go live to the steps of the Supreme Court for a report from FRC's director for the Center for Human Dignity, Mary Sock, who was at the Supreme Court today and participated in the massive pro-life rally. Also, Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton will give us his take on today's oral arguments, and we'll get an update from him on the status of the National Defense Authorization Act that uh, may be stalled in the Senate. We'll talk about that. And 49 years after the U.S. Supreme Court imposed abortion, essentially with no restrictions through all nine months of pregnancy on the entire nation, we have an opportunity to right this grievous wrong. That in itself should be a source of encouragement to pro-life Americans especially when we consider how we got to this moment. FRC Action's Brent Kylan joins me for that encouraging conversation. Another source of hope and encouragement is how parents are battling, as they should, to take back their children's education. You may recall a Virginia mother, Stacy Langton, who was on the program a couple of weeks ago highlighting the pornographic books in the school libraries. Well, she may have lost uh, round one, but the fight continues as Fairfax County School District put the books back on the shelves for the kids. We're going to talk about that. And finally, after all the denials from the White House on down about schools not teaching critical race theory, one superintendent admitted it, or at least let it slip, that CRT is a major push in public school classrooms. We'll talk with FRC's Meg Kilgannon about all of this and more. And let me just say thank you to all of you who participated in Giving Tuesday and partnered with FRC. We are very, very grateful for your partnership and your support. Oral arguments, as I mentioned in the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, were heard by the United States Supreme Court this morning, ending shortly before noon after nearly two hours. The court's conservative justices seem poised to uphold the Mississippi abortion law at the heart of the case, but less clear was whether or not the court might completely overturn the infamous 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy. Now, outside, pro-lifers gathered in front of the steps of the courthouse to give a voice for the voiceless. Joining me now from the courthouse steps is Mary Sock, director of the Center for Human Dignity at the Family Research Council. Mary, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Tony. So, Mary, give our listeners, our viewers, a sense of what took place earlier today as the oral arguments were underway. As the oral oral arguments were underway, hundreds of pro-lifers and many pro-abortionists gathered outside the Supreme Court. On the pro-life side of the rally, there was a there was a hopefulness in the air that there was so much joy. There was, it was the moment that the pro-life movement has been waiting for for 49 years, a chance for America to once again defend the unborn. Now, we were there uh, last year or a little over a year ago when the court was looking at Louisiana's law on abortion clinic regulations. Uh, was the atmosphere more positive this time with a sense of anticipation given the new justices that are now sitting on the court? It certainly was. There was there was a palpable sense of hope, uh, a feeling that this is the moment that America has been waiting for. This is the moment where 
we can finally be be at the front of the world in defending the unborn, where where people will finally once again have have the opportunity to have a say in in whether or not a baby in the in the womb should be killed. And this is this is an absolute atrocity that that for 49 years in the United States we have allowed unborn children to be brutally killed in the womb. And, and it's something that I think the pro-life movement felt today could come to an end. Uh, Mary, one final question for you. As you, you saw, the, the sometimes we have those competing rallies there at the front of the Supreme Court. There were those advocating for abortion under the provisions of Roe. But is your sense that as that side kind of, uh, is it diminishing? Is there a sense of deflation among those advocating for abortion on demand? I think there certainly was. As you mentioned, Tony, we were here for the Louisiana case, and and it seemed like the other side was much more energized at that point. Today, we saw a lot of wounded people, a lot of people who who were here um, expressed their, their woundedness and, and um, unable to reconcile the fact that that unborn children have been killed in their mother's wombs for 49 years. I think that I think we'll continue to see a lot of pain from the pro-abortion movement, and and sometimes that pain will be displayed through anger, as it as it was frequently today. Mary Sock, thanks so much for uh, joining us, and thank you for being up there representing all of us uh, at the Supreme Court today. Thanks so much for having me, Tony. Now I want to turn our attention to what took place inside the court and what we might expect in the days and months to come. Joining me now to talk about today's oral arguments, we're going to be joined by Sharif Gurgis. He is Associate Professor of Law at Notre Dame Law School. He served as a law clerk to Supreme Court Justice Samuel, uh, Samuel Alito. Uh, we're going to be joined by him in, in just a moment. I think some very interesting aspects of the uh, arguments that were taking place uh, on the, within the Supreme Court uh, today. Um, my sense in looking, I'm going to, I'm going to ask uh, Sharif this, but in my sense in, in listening to this is that those on the court, on the left side of this the court, uh, are struggling to try to somehow bolster Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the two cases, the two decisions that uphold abortion on demand in this country. The reason I say that, and uh, we have a, what we we now have the professor, I'll go to this clip in just a moment. Professor, welcome to uh, Washington Watch. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Sharif, let me just ask you this. Um, What, Overall, what did you think about today's uh, oral arguments? Well, I thought there were a lot of people who at 959 would have told you that there's no chance that the court overturns Roe v. Wade, who by the end of the argument would have told you that's probably the most likely outcome. The main reason is that Justice Kavanaugh is widely seen as the swing vote, and Justice Kavanaugh at every turn was suggesting that he thinks this is an issue that under the Constitution belongs to the states. The only middle ground that was discussed was was by the chief justice, but nobody seemed to take it. And the lawyers on both sides seemed to think it was unworkable. It did seem that there was very little from the left other than trying to those on the left side of the court, if you will, the liberal side um, to, you know, stare decisis is one of the the points. The chief justice made reference to that, too. But it seemed like. uh, Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor, was the one who was doing most of the talking, uh, at least when the uh, Mississippi was making its case. And quite frankly, I think she was reaching. Um, one of the arguments that she used to, uh, I don't want to play this uh, clip if we can real quick. Um, it was, um, let me see if I have it. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, clip number four, please. Play clip four. I'm not trying to argue that we should overturn those cases. I just think you're dissimilating when you say that any ruling here wouldn't have an effect on those. Respectfully, I, I, that's that's. Do you I, think it, no, that no state is going to think otherwise? That no people in the population aren't going to challenge those cases 
in court. And she was making reference, uh, Sharif, to Griswold, Lawrence, Obergefell, uh, literally trying to tie Roe uh, to those cases saying, well, look, if we overturn Roe, we could lose all of these as well. Yeah, I don't think that went anywhere, and I don't think it will go anywhere for a couple of reasons. But probably the most important one is that there's just no serious opposition from the states to those much more settled precedents. Um, whether they were rightly or wrongly decided in the first place, you don't see states passing laws that are trying to challenge the Gris Griswold's rule that uh, married couples have access to contraceptives. You don't see them even challenging uh, Obergefell's rule that same-sex marriage has to be recognized. You, don't, you certainly don't see them trying to, trying to pass anti-sodomy statutes that would challenge Florence versus Texas. So whereas Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey are every bit as contested as they were when they were handed down, if not more so. So there's right. no yeah. real comparison between the two. Yeah, and, and that point has kind of come across, that this has politicized the court probably more than anything, because they reached in and they grabbed this from the American people and did not allow the democratic process to reach consensus on this. And this seems to be, and this was uh, uh, some of the questioning and comments made today, that there is a recognition that that's what the court did. Yeah, I think that's uh, a point that's especially powerful with Justice Kavanaugh. He seems to say at several points that, look, these are difficult issues. There are real um, competing interests on both sides. There are fair-minded people of goodwill on both sides who take a different position on what the law should be. And because it's so complicated and because there are so many difficult moral questions at stake and so many different ways to respond to those moral concerns, to meet the needs of women, um, as well as protect uh, unborn life, that this is not something that the courts are fitted to handle. And this is something that's much better suited to the political branches and that, as a matter of fact, our Constitution leaves it to the political branches and to the states um, rather than the courts. What did you make of the, the conversation about science? Uh, Justice Sotomayor trying to be dismissive of the arguments that uh, children in utero feel pain, uh, equating that to dead people who react to stimuli. I mean, again, are they reaching to try to uphold Roe? You know, it's interesting. It, it wasn't entirely clear to me exactly where she was trying to go with that line of argument. One, one reaction I had to it is that most pro-choice advocates today, and certainly most philosophers who argue for uh, abortion rights or abortion access, anything like that, would tell you, well, of course, that from from the from conception onward, what you have is a human being in the sense of a whole and complete member of the species Homo sapiens. The same thing that you have at the teenage stage and at the elderly stage is what you have at the zygote embryo and fetal stage. And they just disagree about the moral worth of the human being at different stages. She, at some point, seemed to be veering in the direction of challenging even that scientific consensus that this is yeah. exactly the same organism. And that, that would seem like an unusual tack to take. Um, it's certainly not the tack that um, any serious pro-choice scholars that I'm aware of today would take because it's just a matter of science that it's a human organism from conception. And it seemed an especially unproductive way to try to push um, this constitutional argument along. Right. And I guess one thing it, that was striking to me is that Justice Kagan, who is normally the most incisive one of the most incisive uh, questioners at oral arguments seems silent. to say almost nothing. Sharif, Sharif, we're out of time. Got to leave it there. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, 
visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The Center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers who advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org slash subscriptions. At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So good to have you with us. Again, I want to thank all of those uh, who participated in Giving Tuesday and partnered with FRC. We're very, very grateful. And speaking of giving, I'm going to give away one of our stand mugs, one of our stand coffee mugs. Uh, coffee is what I put in. You can put tea in it or something else. Uh, 15 ounces made in the USA. It's a stand mug. Last week we had a text giveaway, and today I'm going to announce the winner. It's Haley from Raleigh, North Carolina. She is our stand mug winner. Haley shared that she stands for life. Life begins at conception and abortion takes the life of an innocent human being, she said. Congrats, Haley, and uh, stick around because later I'm going to tell you how you can win a stand mug as well. Or you can always go to TonyPerkins.com and buy one and make great Christmas gifts. On Monday, a Senate motion to end debate on the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act failed by a vote of 41 to 51. It required 60 votes. Five liberal lawmakers joined all Republicans who voted to reject the procedural step forward. In remarks on the Senate floor just before the vote, Senator Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma, ranking member on the Senate Armed Services Committee, accused Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of trying to jam the bill through the Senate without adequate consideration. We're in place right now because, this place right now, because uh, Senator Schumer won't prioritize national defense and fund our troops, because the majority leader mismanaged the Senate schedule. He won't allow votes on bipartisan amendments that make our country more secure. Well, joining me now by phone to talk about the latest on this must-pass annual military spending bill, is Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, an Army veteran and a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Senator, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tony. It's good to be back on with you. Happy uh, uh, early Merry Christmas to you and all your listeners. Although it's never too Absolutely. early to say Merry Christmas, right? Never, never too early. Not around here. And you can always say Merry Christmas here. Uh, <laughs> Senator, before I get into the NDAA, I want to ask uh, your thoughts. I want you to put your lawyer hat on for a moment and give us your thoughts on the oral arguments today that were heard by the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case. Well, Tony, first off, I have to disclaim your um, you know, slander of me as having a lawyer hat. Um, it's been 15 years uh, since I practiced law, and I've been clean ever since, and I don't want to have a relapse. 
So you're a recovering uh, lawyer. I'm a recovering lawyer. I was such a good lawyer, okay. Tony. I had to leave the law practice and go be an infantryman. Um, but I listened to the oral arguments, as so many did today. And, and I, I caveat everything I say with it's always hard to read the tea leaves from an oral argument when justices might often be playing devil's advocate. But what I heard today I found pretty reassuring. Um, it did not sound like any of these justices are looking for an escape hatch to dismiss the Mississippi case on procedural grounds. Um, I'd say at, at least four, if not five, of the justices were prepared to face squarely um, the wrong ruling that the court issued in 1973 in Roe v. Wade. They weren't looking for half measures to find some way to uphold the Mississippi law, but also uphold the Roe and Casey line of cases. Um, I thought some of the questions were extremely penetrating, and the pro-abortion side had no defense for them. Considered uh, Justice Kavanaugh's questions about all of the precedents the court has overturned in its history, and, and why is it that Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey would be any different from those? I mean, just consider, Tony, from the modern uh, era of the court. In 1986, in Bowers v. Hardwick, the court upheld a law that criminalized uh, gay conduct. Um, just 17 years later in Lawrence v. Texas, they overruled Bowers v. Hardwick. And another 12 years later, they said that the Constitution requires states to recognize gay marriage. So in the span of less than three decades, the court went from saying a state can criminalize gay sexual conduct to that states have to recognize gay marriage. Um, if the court can do that, on the gay rights cases, then surely it can also reverse wrongly decided cases uh, like Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. It can't be the case that the on that stare decisis is a Latin phrase that means only liberal decisions can never be reversed. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly seems that way. And, and but it, it seemed like there was a realization. I was talking about this earlier. Uh, there seems to be a realization that this is going down. So that, so justice. Sotomayor was trying to attach Roe v. Wade to those other cases that you made reference to, Lawrence and Obergefell, trying to somehow say, well, if this goes, those could go too. Um, I, I think there's an understanding that the left is losing control over the courts, and they've built so much of their policy on judicial fiat rather than the foundation of common law, the natural law. It's just there. It's positive law. They just said it to be so, and so it has been so. Um, but I don't want to spend all my time on that because I want to get to the NDAA. Um, and yesterday, some liberal Democrats joined with the Republicans to block the procedural vote going forward. What's happening with the National Defense Authorization Act? Well, well, we refuse to end the debate on this bill, Tony, because uh, Chuck Schumer hasn't allowed sufficient debate and amendments to occur in the first place. Look, the annual defense bill has passed every year for 60 years. It would be um, uh, a total incompetence for Chuck Schumer to have mismanaged this process so badly that he doesn't get it passed this year. Now, to be clear, I also voted against starting debate on this because I don't think this is a good bill that our troops deserve and it doesn't deliver on what they deserve. Um, however, it's just an example of what a poor floor leader Chuck Schumer has proved to be. I mean, we spent months, months voting on nominees you've never heard of for offices you didn't know existed when we could have been voting on the defense bill and having votes on all these amendments, like our amendment to strip out the provision that requires women to register for the draft and potentially face draft into combat arms roles, or our amendments to restore the commander's authority in the UCMJ, because I don't believe that our military justice system is systemically racist, as the Democrats would argue to say nothing of other amendments that uh, deal with core military functions. But Schumer hasn't allowed any of that. That's why we're not, we're not finished with this bill yet. So what's, uh, what's the set? Will we get to this before the end of the year, or are we looking I into so. 2022? I mean, I think we, could, we could start voting as early as tonight, Tony, maybe tomorrow on some of these amendments, and, and hopefully we will pass it before Christmas time. Okay, well, I'm grateful for you standing the ground to clean up this bill, because you're right, it's a bad bill with all of the stuff piled on that the left has put in there. Senator, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tony. All right. Folks, stick with us. Coming up, more on the life issues. We take a look at how far the pro-life community has come and how we, uh, we still got a ways to go. But there's a reason to be encouraged. We're going to talk about that next with Brent Kylan. 
Vice President of FRC Action here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Finley Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In Scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Tony Perkins, and you're listening to Washington Watch, the website, TonyPerkins.com. We're going to continue our conversation about Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs case that was before the Supreme Court uh, this morning. We're going to continue that conversation into the night. In fact, tonight's edition of Pray, Vote, Stand is going to be focused on this after a half century of the right of this, uh, after a half century, we'll have the opportunity to correct this wrong of Roe v. Wade question is, is this the year? Is this the case? We're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to be joined by ADF uh, attorney Aaron Hawley, who actually happens to be the wife of Senator Josh Hawley. Mary Sock will be joining us. We just heard from her earlier. And David Clawson. Uh, That's at 8 p.m. Eastern time. I encourage you to tune in for Pray Vote Stand, 8 p.m. Eastern time, prayvotestand.org. Now, it may not be clear how the Supreme Court will rule after today's oral arguments in this major abortion case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. But one thing is clear. The pro-life movement has come a long way since the infamous 1973 Roe v. Wade decision legalized abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy. And it is largely because of dedicated men and women who have refused to back down and have tirelessly committed themselves to speaking up for and defending the unborn. Joining me now to talk about this and how we got to this point today is Brent Collin, Vice President of FRC Action. Brent, Kylan, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you, Tony. Good to be with you. I was just thinking about this as I was talking uh, earlier with, um, with, uh, with, uh, with uh, trying to remember the guest we had on uh, talking about this. I guess it was... Um, Senator Cotton, uh, this thought came to mind when we were discussing the impact that the pro-life community has had on politics. I mean, I think of Senator Cotton. I think of the number of pro-life senators that we have and the fact that today every member of the Republican House in the House on the Republican side of the House um, is pro-life or at least states a position of pro-life. We've come a long way. Tony, we really have. And, uh, you know, as we have been involved, America really has become more 
pro-life and the progress, as you pointed out earlier, we've got a long ways to go, but the progress really is undeniable. And uh, millions of people committed on this issue who have demonstrated courage and uh, persistence, having those conversations with friends and uh, neighbors and family and winning hearts and minds. And Tony, I think to put this in perspective, um, it's something when you think about the fact that you know, almost 50 years ago, when we received the Roe v. Wade ruling, we didn't really have a pro-life movement, not in the sense of of the pro-life movement that we that we have today. It took a while to put that together. Uh, in some cases, with some groups, it took years for people to know, how do we respond to this? What do we do? How do we organize? And it took a long time to build that infrastructure, but we are seeing the fruit of it now. As you mentioned, Tony, with these uh, elected leaders, I think there's a number of key factors that play into this. The role of the state legislatures has been huge. The role of good uh, judges has been huge. And then, you know, one of these outcomes is the fact that the pro-life position is now mainstream within the Republican Party. That was not always the case. Uh, not that long ago, actually, uh, high-level officials, establishment Republicans would ignore the issue, downplay it, and sometimes actually undermine it. So we really have come a very long way in the defense of the unborn. No, no question about that. I've seen that even in my time in the, the political arena. Back to when I was first elected, having a pro-life position uh, was uh, w- was not mainstream uh, within the Republican Party. There was a lot of pro-choice Republicans. That is not the case. In fact, in the last presidential, uh, in the 2016 Republican primary, uh, 17 candidates, only one had a stated position of being pro-choice. So clearly you're right. But also we've seen at the state level, you mentioned those state legislators that have been elected because of pro-life activists, and many of them are pro-life. But we've seen a record number of pro-life laws that have been passed in the last decade alone. Tony, we have. And and again, to put this in perspective, you know, Roe v. Wade been around for about 50 years, but half of the pro-life legislation that has actually been enacted since Roe v. Wade, half of that has come in just the last 10 years, which is some incredible momentum on behalf of life. That's amounted to 580 pro-life bills being passed at the state level, not just introduced but actually passed at the state level over the past 10 years. And those are the types of laws that have put the pressure on the courts to have to take um, take these cases up, uh, like we're seeing today with Dobbs, saying, you know, these are laws uh, in defense of life. We're, we're going to uh, protect life at every chance we get, and it really is is making an impact. And I think it also points to the, the importance of those local races. You know, oftentimes those are overlooked. Uh, the federal races, the presidential race get get most of the focus, but um, and, and, and those are obviously incredibly important, but the state level is really where we've been able to move and advance the ball down the field on behalf of life uh, over the last 10 years. And it's, uh, again, it's truly making an impact there. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the scripture, do not grow weary in well-doing for in due season. That's right. Uh, we will reap. And, and I think this is it. And we got to continue to pray, continue to work. There's a lot more work to be done. In fact, if uh, Roe v. Wade is overturned and this issue go, goes back to the states, there'll be a lot more work for Christians and pro-life Americans to do. Brent Kylan, thanks so much for joining us. Always great to talk with you. Thank you, Tony. Good to be with you. All right, coming up, As the movement for the unborn continues to grow, there's another movement that needs uh, even, uh, well, needs a little encouragement, but it's growing as well. It's the movement to take back public education. We're going to talk about it with Meg Kilgannon next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, 
and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students, are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. This is Washington Watch and the website, TonyPerkins.com. Tune in tonight for Pray Vote Stand. We'll be taking a deeper look at the Dobbs case and what it means to Roe v. Wade. We'll be joined by... Erin Hawley, wife of Senator Josh Hawley. She's an attorney working with Alliance Defending Freedom. Mary Sock will be with us, as well as David Clawson, on how we can pray. Uh, actually, the next 48 hours are going to be very critical in this case, and we'll talk about why tonight, 8 o'clock Eastern Time, prayvotestand.org. All right, I mentioned that uh, Haley from Raleigh, North Carolina, is the winner of the uh, the Text a Mug contest. But now, here is your chance to win a stand mug. Just text the word MUG to 67742. That's the word MUG to 67742 and follow the link to enter. Now, not everyone can win, but you can get one too for a a gift of a stand mug this season. Uh, In fact, you could put this on your Christmas list and say, hey, what do you want? If somebody asks you what you want for Christmas, say, I'd like a stand mug. And then send them to TonyPerkins.com to find out how they can buy one for you. Now, by the way, message sends uh, rates vary. Message and data rates may apply, reply, reply, stop to cancel, help for help. Visit FRC.org slash text for terms and conditions and our privacy policy. I'm required to read that. All right. All right, in the last segment, we talked about the big gains that we've seen in the pro-life movement thanks to the efforts of a growing number of committed men and women who've stepped up to speak out and defend the unborn. I mean, we, I've, I've watched this, and it's, quite frankly, it's the reason I got involved in politics, um, kind of swept into it through the pro-life movement. Well, I see on the horizon the next area where a movement is growing, and it's encouraging, it's challenging, a lot of bad out there, But it's encouraging to see that parents are stepping up, taking on the issue of public education in the indoctrination that is happening in America's classrooms. This was critical in last month's Election Day victories in states like Virginia. And then, of course, all across the country, there were school board races in which conservatives won. Parents 
pushing back against this leftist indoctrination are taking over school boards. Um, but we need to keep our eye on the ball. A few victories are great, but we need many victories in order to right what is wrong in America when it comes to public education. Joining me now to talk about some of the latest developments is Meg Kilgannon, Senior Fellow for Education Studies here at the Family Research Council. Meg, welcome back to the program. Johnny, it's great to be here. Meg, I want to start off, uh, I'm going to get to Virginia because we've got some developments there with uh, some of the books in the libraries, but I want to start off uh, with something that uh, is just now surfacing. It actually happened uh, the beginning of last month, November the 9th, but we've heard from the White House on down that uh, critical race theory isn't being taught in schools. This is all being made up by conservatives. It's the boogeyman that's out there. Well, the superintendent of the Detroit Public School Community District um, earlier, well, as I said, on November the 9th, made very clear that uh, critical race theory is in the classrooms. I'm going to play a clip of Superintendent Nikolai Viti, who uh, spoke about critical race theory. Now, he's not a conservative trying to accuse people of doing something. He's trying to defend what's happening in the public school classrooms. Play uh, that clip for us, please. Our curriculum is uh, deeply using critical race theory, um, especially in social studies, but you'll find it uh, in English language arts and the other uh, disciplines. We made, uh, we were very intentional about creating uh, curriculum, infusing materials, um, and embedding critical race theory within our curriculum, as was stated by many uh, speakers today, it's because uh, students need to understand the truth of history, uh, understand uh, the history of this country, uh, to better understand who they are, uh, and about the injustices that have occurred in this country. Meg, isn't that what we've been saying, that it's there in the classrooms? Absolutely, that's what we've been saying. It's there. It may not be called critical race theory, but it's infused. It's infused throughout the curriculum. It's embedded in social studies, it's embedded in English, it's embedded in history and government and even math and science. It's absolutely there. It, it, it's baked in, as they say. So I think now we're we're past this point of the hide and seek where the you know the left is saying it's not in there it's not in there I mean I think the, the, we know it's there uh, parents know it's there uh, their their children are being taught to hate America that uh, America is systemically racist it's wrong uh, this is popping up so now the question is how do we deal with this we've seen just recently North Dakota uh, they have banned critical race theory. Uh, from the classrooms in North Dakota. The legislature passed a bill. The governor signed it. Interesting, the head of the North Dakota United School, uh, United Teachers Union, denounced the efforts to ban critical race theory from the classrooms and said that the theoretical framework was not a part of the state's public school curriculum. Again, we see it's not there. Well, certainly it's not being taught with neon lights saying critical race theory, but as we just heard, and as you just stated, it's been infused into every aspect. Where do we stand now with the, what's happening across the country with parents addressing critical race theory? There's still battles being fought? Absolutely. There are different states have different um, methods, different um, different legislation has been in, enacted in, in um, Florida, in Texas, you said North Dakota recently. Uh, and now the question is going to be, will these let, will these bills withstand um, the lawsuits that will follow? Uh, because just like we have a free speech issue when it comes to transgender pronouns and compelled speech, we have sort of the same issue in reverse on critical race theory and the government not being able to prevent people from, from speaking certain ways. So the way you go about getting rid of critical race theory in the school system, I think, goes to the bigger issue of the fact that it's baked in. It, it informs um, the training of teachers. It, it, in, it is um, inculcated in, in new teacher training programs across the country. And so if, if we want to, to address it, we're going to have to look at all those teacher training programs and start focusing on content on subject matter and on pedagogy and not on 
theories like critical race theory and queer theory. Um, we need to educate children. And in a district like Detroit, um, students, most students are performing under the national average on national and standardized tests there. And I don't think more critical race theory is going to help them do better on those sorts of measures of success. What they need to focus on is reading and writing and arithmetic, that's the three R's as we call them, right? That we need to help them get grounded in those fundamentals of education that are, that are necessary for everybody, rich or poor. Um, you need to know the fundamentals to get ahead in life and to to be truly educated. Critical race theory doesn't help with that. I want to amplify something you just said because I think it's extremely important that we understand that this is not something that you can solve just by taking a particular textbook, even though you don't use textbooks much anymore, uh, but to take a particular curriculum out of the classroom. That's not going to solve the problem. This goes back to, as you said, what our teachers are being taught. Uh, it is the theories that are underlying education in colleges, in universities, that are creating this framework from which these teachers go on and teach. So this is a, a much longer process of rooting out uh, kind of a CRT-ectomy, removing this from uh, public education. And it's again, it's not going to be settled just by removing this this program or that program. This is a long-term process. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm out here in California at a, at a conference, and I was talking today with some folks who are setting up an alternative um, teacher certification program so that veterans, people who've had a career and have retired and want to return to, a, to have a second career and perhaps would like to teach, they can do it this online program and become certified uh, once they can prove that they have subject matter expertise and they have pedagogical tools. In other words, they know how to teach to teach kids. This, I think, is just a fantastic development because you're going to have new people entering the classroom who haven't necessarily come out of the educational infrastructure at universities who will be bringing our new values uh, that are more reflective of broader society. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. We uh, had a, a limited experiment, experiment with that back in uh, Louisiana when I was in the legislature, and it wasn't based upon the concerns of a critical race theory. It was just the fact we had a shortage of teachers. And so we, we had uh, former military and others who, who had life skills uh, that they just needed the certification to teach, and we got them into the classroom. But I think this is a great approach to diluting uh, the the influence of these uh, left-leaning universities and colleges and putting into the classrooms those that have real-life experience that have not been indoctrinated through these institutions. Uh, Meg, I want, I want to bring up a couple of issues that are, that are currently happening. Uh, first, uh, Wisconsin, uh, a school district there being sued by parents over their pronoun policy. This is very similar to what we saw in Virginia with what was happening there in, in Loudoun County. And we're going to go to Fairfax County in just a moment because there's some developments there. Uh, but uh, parents, again, this is, uh, this is not necessarily a part of CRT, but it is a part of the deconstruction of uh, that's taking place on human sexuality. Right. Well, I, you know, quickly following critical race theory is queer theory. And this issue is a part of queer theory. Um, so you have a situation where a, a student is depressed and anxious and is questioning her gender and her parents have her in therapy and they ask the school to please continue to use her given name and her biological pronouns. Uh, and the school just said, nope, we're going to use we're going to change her, use the name she's picking as a boy, and we're going to use male pronouns for her. Uh, and and this is this is the, the, exactly what the problem is um, for a lot of parents today is that that trust between the parents and the school have been broken, and the school is inserting itself and acting in a parental role and putting its substituting their judgments for the judgments of the parents when they have absolutely no right to do that. And so uh, um, it's been, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this, this case plays out. I was reading some of the documents 
um, on this case before the interview, and um, the 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 young woman in one of the cases was experiencing rapid onset gender dysphoria, meaning she'd never had any indication of this previously. It just was all of a sudden a problem, and her her parents were getting her therapy. They were helping their child, um, and it is it is not acceptable that families feel like they have to remove their children from the public school systems um, when their children are in a crisis because the school system isn't supporting the parent who is doing the best job they can to help their child to heal and, and grow. Um, this, isn't, this isn't a sustainable situation. We're going to see right. more and more of these cases as these policies continue to, to pop up and to be utilized, and it's going to continue to be a problem. Well, these uh, gender-affirming policies that are in our public education system are, are a direct assault on parental rights uh, because they're allowing these confused children, which oftentimes are being confused by what's being taught in the schools, and, of course, the peer pressure and social media. They're completely removing parents from the equation, and that is uh, it's just fundamentally wrong. It's immoral. It's, it, uh, it's, it's it wicked. It's the worst thing to do for children. It's the yeah. worst possible thing to do for children who are not in, in a physical danger. You know, we have laws that protect children who are in dangerous situations at home, right? But right. Uh, when, when the parents are in good faith trying to do the best they can for their child who's struggling, it is simply just it, it really frustrating and enraging to me as a parent to think that you have to remove your child from from school for your child to be safe. Uh, speaking of evil, before we run out of time here, Meg, uh, Loudoun County, or actually Fairfax County uh, School District, uh, we had uh, Stacy Langton on uh, a couple weeks ago talking about the books that she had discovered, pornographic books in the school library. She raised an issue about them at a school board meeting. She was shut down in the school board meeting for talking about it. Uh, she's been, you know, contesting those books. But the school board, uh, the Fairfax County School District in Falls Church, Virginia, has put two of those controversial books, one entitled Lawn Boy and Gender Queer, uh, back onto the shelves. What's going on? Back on the shelves. They were reviewed by... Um an expert committee, Tony, of uh, school officials and two parents of high school students and two high school students themselves, uh, whose names, of course, we cannot know because they are secret. But um, the, they've reviewed the books and determined that they are appropriate for uh, the high school level. I read Lawn Boy over, they did, They announced the decision, of course, uh, right before Thanksgiving so that no one would talk about it or know that it happened, right? right? So thank you for covering it now, because this is exactly the kind of thing that, that we need to know happens. Um, I read Lawn Boy over the Thanksgiving break, and um, it, it, um, they, the, the decision by the, the board said that it did not meet the statutes for obscenity in the state of Virginia and that the book contained no pedophilia. So I suppose that the people on that committee think that children committing sex acts on each other is not pedophilia since it doesn't involve an adult and a child. Um, Meg, is, Meg, we're gonna we're gonna have to leave it there. We're, we're up against the uh, the end of the program, but obviously we're gonna revisit this because this is a real problem. Folks, thanks so much for joining us. Tune in tonight at 8 p.m. for Pray Vote Stand. Until next time, you know what to do. Keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.